The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today for the discussion about end-of-year planning regarding your public access and compliance files. Joining me today on this panel to um, talk about this topic uh, is both two of the brilliant, smart, knowledgeable attorneys from the Murthy Law Firm, Alyssa Klein, who's a member, and Jessica Beaver uh, in the green card department. Uh, Alyssa, of course, is the supervising uh, attorney that focuses on the audit and compliance department within the Murthy Law Firm. So to all of you who are business owners and company entrepreneurs and HR team, hopefully this will give you a sense of you know, how to plan for your company. And so, um, and also, I'm sure many of you have been seeing the continued increase in enforcement and the spotlight on employers who are using the H-1B, the PERM, or any immigration benefits for that matter. And because it is becoming more and more uh, scrutinized, we think it is extremely important for you to understand how you can try to minimize your risks and dot your I's, cross your T's, have your due diligence done so that you can maintain the required compliance files. Uh, of course, not to sound scary at the start of the session, but obviously at any time when there are violations, there are going to be penalties, but more so with the current press, uh, you know, in the current political climate with President Trump, not only are companies capable of facing financial uh, penalties, in terms of fines or back wages, but also potential prevention from using the H-1B program or the permanent labor certification program. And obviously in egregious cases, if there's considered to be any kind of knowing violations or willful violations, et cetera, possible jail terms for, uh, you know, where they go after employers or businesses. So again, I don't want to sound scary, but we're just sharing why we think this topic was so important for us to discuss at the end of the year. With that, uh, Alyssa, if I can have you start the discussion with the LCA public access file requirements, what are the Department of Labor's requirement for an employer in terms of file maintenance? Because the employers on this call are like, they do H1s, they do LCAs, but I don't know how many of them actually maintain all the files, hopefully everybody, but if not, you'll guide them. Sure, absolutely. And I think we'll just start with the general overview of some uh, broad requirements for, for this. Uh, so in the H-1B, H-1B1, or E3 context, uh, employers that file labor condition applications, or LCAs, uh, they're required to keep a public access file. Some people may refer to it as public inspection file. Um, and you have to have an individual file for each single LCA. Uh, there are also timelines set for when the files need to be created, how long they need to be maintained, and, and what documents need to go in each file. So to begin with, uh, it's important to understand that the petitioning employer 
must complete the public access file or PATH and be able to have it publicly available for inspection within one day of filing of the LCA. The, the employer must also maintain the public access file for one year past the final date. Any foreign national is employed pursuant to the LCA, or if no workers were ever employed pursuant to the LCA, the public access file must be kept for at least one year from the date the LCA uh, expired or was withdrawn. And just a final general overall point, uh, it's important to keep in mind that this file must be made available to any potentially interested or affected parties, including representatives from the DOL who can randomly, randomly uh, audit the files. Okay, so uh, I'm not sure if that was a lot of information, but the crux of the issue is you're supposed to have this public access file available within a day, and it should be available for whether the FDNS agent, the ICE agent, whoever is coming in, they can actually tell you as the employer, come in and ask your HR person, please open up and show me the file. Uh, so what kinds of documents, Jessica, uh, must go into the public access file. <clears throat> sure, Sheila. So the first thing is a signed copy of the certified LCA. So nowadays, with a few exceptions, we're using the DOL's online iCERT system. So for these LCAs, the public access file must contain a copy of the certified LCA signed by the employer. A good kind of practice point or a tip that we'd like to provide is because the LCA does take about a week to be certified by the Department of Labor and the fact that like Sheila said, you're having to set this up within one day. We recommend putting a copy of the LCA that's in process initially when you set up the file and then replacing it once the version has actually been certified. And if they forget, then what happens? <clears throat> if they forget to put the, the LCA in there, again, this is an important reason why we should be doing these internal audits, is you want to catch that mistake earlier rather than later to try to update the file with missing items uh, at the time that you catch it. And also, I guess everybody on this call is obviously aware that effective since November 19th, you have to use the new version of the labor condition application filed with the H-1B or H-1B-1 or E-3. And there's some gray areas. And in fact, the other day in, a, in the Murthy Law Firm's weekly attorney brainstorming meeting, we ended up having like a half an hour, 40 minute discussion about one or two small questions on that, which could have multiple interpretations. Just to share with you that something looks simple and straightforward, but there are multiple sort of hidden layers and wrinkles that you need to be aware of. So Alyssa, how does the employer keep maintain the wage rate documentation, what they need to maintain or keep? So your file has to include documentation uh, that explains the, the wage rate that you're actually going to, to pay to the worker. Uh, a lot of people will do LCAs for individual employees. And if you're doing an LCA for just one single worker, uh, you want to specify the offered salary rather than indicating a wage range. Uh, and then the LCA by itself should satisfy the wage rate documentation requirement. Otherwise, you want to include perhaps a signed statement or a letter or a memo uh, from the employer attesting to the wage it intends to pay. Okay. And so does the, the generally your attorney or company attorney, if you are working with outside, comp, outside law firms, or if you're using your in-house team, they need to have the wage rate system and the documentation that you as an employer is using in order to figure out and determine your salaries. So uh, that's basically you want to have an explanation of the wage determination. And so you must include a complete and unambiguous explanation of how the actual wage for the position was set. 
So, for example, if you have everybody with a bachelor's degree started a certain number, but if you have a master's, you have a different number and years of experience, different number for the same program or analyst or software engineer, you need to say based on this, based on that. The evidence for the wage determination is typically provided in the form of a memorandum that summarizes the system that your company will use. This documentation would also explain how future raises will be determined, such as having a set process for providing employee reviews on an annual or a semi-annual basis. So is it based only on employee reviews? Is it based on attitude? Is it based on, you know, what are your criteria? And the more specific they are, the less object, the more objective and less subjective they are, that's given obviously a lot more weight. In addition, any time that there is a pay raise given, the public access file should be updated with this information. On the other hand, if there's a decrease in the pay, this actually may require an H-1B amendment to be filed. Employers should discuss this with their attorneys, uh, either employment or immigration law attorneys, before making any salary reductions, even if the sa reduced salary still meets the wage listed on the LCA. And a lot of time, employers and companies used to tell us if the entire company is taking a 10% wage cut rather than have layoffs or termination, it still, I think, is a red alert and a question whether some kind of an amendment, in fact, needs to be filed. Um, Jessica, what about the prevailing wage documentation? So, Sheila, basically the public access file must show how the prevailing wage was determined. If the prevailing wage was uh, used from the DOL, as is the case for most LCAs, um, this documentation should typically suffice. Um, one of the other things that's required is the notification documentation or the notice of posting. The public, of, the public access file must include evidence that the notification requirements have been met. If the position is subject to a collective bargaining representative, which is relatively rare these days, then a copy of the notice provided to the collective bargaining representative should be provided. Um, more commonly, where there is not the collective bargaining representative, the petitioning employer is required to either A, post the notice at two conspicuous locations at the actual worksite, or B, provide electronic notification to all employees at the worksite in the same occupational classification. Yeah, and the electronic notification requirement is something that uh, employers will somewhat frequent, frequently uh, ask about, but I think it's still most common for people to use the physical paper format. Um, with the electronic notification, it's important to understand that you have to ensure that it is reaching all the relevant workers at that work location. And it may be that uh, an employer has an intranet where they can post it, but we would still recommend making sure there's some additional notification directed to, to the affected workers. Um, so that makes it a little harder to achieve than physically posting the notice. Where physical notice is posted, which is, like I said, more common, you want a copy of the notice and some type of documentation evidencing where and when it was posted. Um, for those, for and if you're posting it internally, you want to make sure you note that physical location and the dates it went up, the dates it went down, and then sign it. But there are a lot of employers who have H-1B workers off-site, and it's important to understand if you're placing an H-1B worker at a secondary location, which is the location listed on the LCA, it is not enough to post it at your own headquarters. It physically has to be posted at the actual worksite of the employee. Um, and if that client won't agree to posting the notice, 
um, the, their refusal on, on its own does not give the employer blanket protection. Right, and I think it's I think it's really important to note what Alyssa just said, especially for those of our consulting companies that have the employer mid vendor end client model. That yes, it has to go up at the end client's location. And basically, if the client doesn't cooperate, as Alyssa just said, you cannot file the LCA at all, which means that the pitch one petition cannot be filed by you as an employer. The government is very aware that many end clients do not cooperate and post make the notice and that this is something that they are absolutely looking for when they send the FDNS, the Fraud Detection and National Security Agents, or the ICE agents that come and knock on your door. Or the DOL investigations when they're looking at those public access files. Absolutely. And in addition to the posting that both Jessica and Alyssa just talked about, you have the, the foreign national worker should also be provided with a copy of the LCA by the time that the person starts working based on that LCA and that H-1B petition, and the public access file should evidence that the LCA was actually handed over to the employee. And I think you could have the employee sign a statement of receipt for that particular number. I know a lot of times there's electronic communication, um, but you do want to have some sort of physical evidence that it was provided to them. Okay. And also the benefits memorandum. So the public access file must include a memo explaining the benefits that are offered to the workers. For example, if health insurance is offered, any kind of vacation or paid time off for public holidays or other paid time off, any kind of sick leave, uh, et cetera. Uh, all of, and of course, the foreign national workers should typically be offered the exact same benefits as U.S. workers, because otherwise it comes back to the issue of discrimination and trying to undercut uh, and adversely affect because the bottom line is even if you give more to the it's surprising where people have said you mean I can give more to H-1Bs actually the way that it was written till now yes if you did that you gave more benefits to H-1s than to U.S. that was allowed but now under the Trump administration there is the immigrant and employer rights division um, immigrant employee rights division employers are actually and the government which used to be called the office of special counsel the name was changed about two years ago basically focusing on protecting under the Buy American, Hire American executive order. Uh, uh, Jessica, what about any special requirements with respect to corporate restructurings? Sure. So if a company has undergone restructuring, typically we see this through a merger acquisition, the company should add to the public access file a sworn statement by the new company agreeing to assume all the obligations and liabilities associated with its then predecessor. In addition, the employer must add a list of all of the affected LCAs, the FEIN of the new entity, and an explanation of the new wage system. And what if the, the new entity refuses or, or uh, says that we are, not, we are only buying the assets, we're not buying and taking over any liabilities? What happens? Well, if the, the new H-1B company does not wish to succeed the previous company with respect to the obligations of those workers or, or to retain those workers, I, you know, that's going to be something that has to be dealt with that restructuring agreement and, and how the companies process that, that transaction. Um, but new employers don't have to do a successor in interest. Um, they can file change of employers if they don't want to carry that burden over of whatever previous issues so may have So they would have, have to do the entire perm from mm -hmm. scratch or the entire H-1B from scratch 
in cases where they refuse to take over all of the assets and liabilities mm -hmm. of the company. So that's the crux of the issue is especially if you're it's a big merger and acquisition with hundreds of thousands of employees switching from company A to company B and your company A or company B, but more company B, you'd want to take it over so you can save the money. But if you say, I can't, then you're going to have to be prepared to file all those hundreds of thousands of H-1Bs and fresh perm and fresh I-140 petitions. Alyssa, what about H-1B dependent employers and the issue of willful violations? Sure, Sheila. So dependent employers are companies which employ uh, a certain percentage of staff that are H-1B. Um, and this, uh, what number that is will change depending on how large the organization is. So it is important for companies to continually monitor their staffing levels to make sure that they always know whether or not they're dependent or not dependent when they're filing cases. Willful violators are companies where the Department of Labor will have made this finding against them that they committed this type of violation. So when you have H-1B dependent employers and, and companies that have been found to be willful violators filing H-1B petitions and LCAs, and it's clear on the LCA they're asking the employer this, are you using this LCA for exempt employees? And an exempt employee is a non-immigrant worker that is getting paid at least 60000 a year or has a related master's degree or higher to that occupation. Um, if the LCA is not for exempt workers, then the employer has to meet these additional attestations, which includes not displacement of U.S. workers, not only in their own workforce, but also at, at any other secondary location where they're placing that worker, which is you know, potentially a, you know, another company's office. And that's going to be very tricky for a, a company to be able to establish. Um, you also have to show that you made efforts to recruit effectively for U.S. workers. It's not the same sort of uh, recruitment criteria as we'll discuss with PERM. Uh, it's much more of a industry standard method without s strict specific uh, requirements enumerated. Um, now, because these additional requirements are only associated with non-exempt workers, um, it's recommended, generally speaking, that you know to proceed with with filing these for exempt workers. So basically, try to avoid an hourly rate. Try to use the exempt worker by using professionals as mm -hmm. defined under the federal laws for when a person is a professional, yeah. an executive, or a uh, supervisory and, kind of role. And I think for the degree requirement, if, if you're relying on that degree, you really need to look closely to see, is this a U.S. master's degree that really is directly related to, to the job and occupation I'm offering? Or if I'm looking at a foreign degree, that that foreign degree is an accredited recognized institution and is also directly equivalent to a U.S. master's degree. And in the related field. And in the related field, which is becoming, as we know, increasingly under scrutiny yeah, and so that's the other thing is whether you want to just focus on the 60000 per year, if mm -hmm. that's the easier option, especially under the new form that really sort of gives you that uh, issue. Also, some of the enforcement trends that we are seeing with Department of Labor, Labor audits, investigations of employers' public access files, which, as we talked about earlier, where they suddenly show up at your doorstep and knock on your, you know, come to your company or your business and say, show me your paperwork. It's generally triggered by a complaint. It always often used to be. I think it's m becoming more and more where they're looking at other issues. But uh, often it can be a complaint, but now I think it's all over the place. For example, a former employee who believes that they were not paid the correct wages, clearly it's, it's a big problem because then the government gives that a lot of weight. Um, 
And what they can do is this could result in a review of a large um, number of files and the wage slash pay history to the workers beyond just records relating to the complainant. So for you as an employer, it's really important to have your files up to date and ready for inspection or investigation by the FDNS or ICE agents. Definitely you want to see that the company, um, you know, we have been seeing that employers or companies are fined because of violations such as a failure to post. Uh, but we've also been seeing issue cases with debarment where the company could is, is then prevented from using the H-1B or the PERM program for green cards. Uh, of course, as an employer or company, you are allowed to appeal these decisions, but it's both costly, time-consuming, and uh, not sure if while all of that is going, going on and you can't hire more people, it's really going to impact your bottom line and your business growth. Um, so trying to fight that as uh, vigorously as possible, as early as possible, and being more proactive can certainly help you. Right. And I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, it's never too late to make some sort of corrective action with your files. So, you know, even though you may not be able to correct certain items timely, like if you did not post before you submitted the LCA, you can't go in your time machine and, and make that happen. But you can try and make timely good faith efforts to correct things as best as you can. And to do that before you're under an audit or investigation will, one, give you more time to take corrective action, and two, you know, what what we see is it presents the company perhaps in a better light when they're going through that process, and then you'll also see, hopefully, that there was a shift in their record keeping where things started to go on track and that they are complying moving forward. But if they hadn't done it, I don't know that it's even if you're showing good faith. Well, there are certain yeah. things that can be added that, you know, if I have a With memo. I-9 files more? So or? you can do those too. But again, there's things that if they didn't timely happen, they, they'll never timely happen. But you can certainly try and, and make take corrective measures as best as you can. If I don't have my wage data in that file, I can go back to the FLC data center and pull that out and put in the file. Now, I'm not going to I'm not going to post date anything. I'm not going to, you know, date anything retroactively. Um, and then you will also add a memo explaining that you made updates to this file due to an internal audit. And then hopefully that also gives the company a better foot moving forward for future files so that they're more knowledgeable when it comes to the ones moving forward and they're not making those same mistakes. Okay. Uh, what about the perm retention of documents under 20 CFR 656.10F? So Jessica, since you're the green card expert, you would be the person to ask this. So, yeah, we're going to switch gears a little bit about what uh, documents you should be retaining for these labor certifications that you're filing for your employees. Um, basically, you have to keep copies of the application and supporting documentation five years from the time of filing the labor certification. Sounds a lot like a, the IRS tax returns for five years. <laughs> exactly. So the, the DOL can audit up, up to five years from the time of filing. Um, it's important to note that it can be paper or electronic copy. A lot of employers ask that as people are becoming paperless and wanting to save space. It can be, you know, either it's kind of up to you. Um, basically, when you're filing online, as a reminder, you're not really submitting this documentation. You're keeping it in the event that a certifying officer audits you. 
Um, about a third of cases are audited. Sometimes there's a higher rate depending on different factors, but that's why you're kind of keeping the documentation. So some of this kind of basic documentation to keep would be copies of that ETA 9089 form that you filed, copies of the prevailing wage determination that you used. Um, also, if there was any supporting documentation, such as a wage survey or something that you used for that. Um, you want to keep evidence of your state workforce agency posting. Um, there was a, a, a brief Balka decision, Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeals, that basically indicated that you do not have to provide a copy of the state workforce agency posting. You know, by just providing the dates enough on the form and attesting, you can uh, kind of meet that requirement. However, conversely, for the tear sheets for the Sunday newspapers, you are required to kind of keep proof of publication. You also want to keep that signed notice of filing that you posted for 10 business days um, in your office. The signed in-house media, if that applies to you, it does not apply to every employer, as well as your signed results of recruitment. Um, basically, the employer or the employer's representative, not the actual attorney that may have helped you on the case, needs to sign this results of recruitment, basically describing the recruitment steps taken. That kind of means the ads that they did, the results achieved, um, the number of people that potentially were hired, and the number of U.S. workers that potentially were lawfully rejected categorized by the reasons. So, for example, um, if you had an applicant that did not meet the education requirement, you would list that on the results of recruitment. Okay. So, I, as we're speaking and having this discussion, I'm sitting here as a HR person or the company owner or the person in charge of H-1B and green card filings for the company. And my head is a little bit spinning because I may have done some of these things, but not necessarily all of these things. And I think it's very important because obviously, as we talked about whether the H-1B goes through and even if it gets approved without them coming and knock on your door, but it's, it's only when the rubber meets the road, when there's that knock on the door, that's when they're going to look at a lot of this or you get a Department of Labor audit request. That's when you know, find out that some of these um, items that had to be taken care of were not taken care of, right? Right. And yes, while audits do typically a uh, occur months after the application was filed, the Department of Labor is allowed to audit up to five years. So it's just important. You don't want to have to be going back to try to find copies of uh, resumes that you received or um, advertisements that you conducted. So that's why it is important to kind of keep uh, evidence of all your efforts of recruitment. Yeah. And, you know, we t Jessica also just talked about the resumes and, you know, so it's very important when you run the green card, the green card case for the perm labor certification, that you maintain every resume and every copy of who applied for the position and why any U.S. workers were not considered as meeting the minimum requirements, remember, it's always a minimum. You can't say my candidate is the best, not in a regular perm case. Uh, the, the minimum standards of a, being of able, willing, and ready and qualified to take the job offered. Also, there must be documentation of the kind of contact that you as an employer made with any potentially qualified applicant whose resume you received, including keeping copies of emails and any telephone logs, that you did notes from any of the job interviews that you as an employer had conducted with the candidate and the reasons why, how, why you documented for denying or rejecting that particular applicant from getting that job. This is extremely important. I remember in the olden days, 
you had to make the contact within 14 days. And that was before the world of emails. I'm going back 20, 30 years ago before emails were so common. Now I would guess that the Department of Labor would probably want it way earlier than the 14-day. It's still it's still a good faith attempt, and, and the 14 days is kind of from case law. So it's always a good idea that, um, you know, as soon as you kind of review the resume, you know, reach out to contact that applicant. I think, you know, the whole purpose of the audit, and, you know, we see these audit requests every day, they do ask for copies of all of the advertisements that have been provided. Mm-hmm. They do ask for a copy of that notice of filing, those results of recruitment, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the resumes and all the types of contact that you may have given. So just like Sheila mentioned with the resumes, it's all about documentation with the Department of Labor. Okay. Um, so now let's get to the forms of the profession, like what kinds of different, uh, you know, th- we basically that we talk about maintaining three out of ten items. Um, so what kinds of paperwork or documentation can an employer maintain? I think we start with... Sure, I'll I'll go ahead and jump in here. I'll start us off with a few of these different types of documentation. Uh, So, you know, there's a requirement that you have these additional forms um, of recruitment for professionals. And one would be job fairs. So an example for the type of documentation for that would be uh, brochures advertising the fair and newspaper advertisements in which uh, the employer is named as a participant in that job fair. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also the employer's website. Um, You could have uh, dated copies of pages from the site that advertise the the job or occupation um, that's involved in the perm. You also could have job search websites other than the employers, and this can be documented again by providing data copies of the pages from the website or websites that advertise the occupation in in the application. And then the last one I'm going to touch upon before moving it forward uh, is on-campus recruiting. Uh, This can be documented by providing copies of the notification used or posted by the college or university's placement office, again naming the employer and the date it conducted interviews for employment in that occupation. And I just wanted to jump in before we go through the the rest of the kind of uh, other advertisements the employer can choose. It's important to note that the regulations talk about can be. So these are not the actual required uh, types of documentation, but this is just to give you an idea, kind of almost a best practice. Of course, you know, make sure you're up to date on the bulk of decisions because some of these are not going to actually be changed Um you know, change statutorily, but they may be changed by case law. So just keep that in mind that these are just kind of best practices can be done to document the steps. So if you have another way to document the step, it may be perfectly fine for for your for your compliance file. Okay. And so the other ways that you can do this, of course, are things like the trade or professional organizations. So for example, with immigration lawyers, you have the American Immigration Lawyers Association or AILA that many of you are aware of. And so if they have they have a job posting, if we are looking for lawyers with experience, we could give it a shot. Now, often we don't find that it necessarily works, especially when unemployment is like 3% or 4% or less, uh, 3.5%. But it can be documented by providing copies of pages off the newsletters or trade journals containing the advertisements for the particular occupation involved in the application for the employment certifi- alien employment certification to b- help bring the foreign national in. Also, you have private employment firms and your contracts with them by providing documentation to demonstrate that the recruitment has been conducted by the private firm for your particular occupation on your behalf. Um, and it might consist, for example, of copies of the contract between you as an employer and the private employment firm, as well as copies of the advertisements or ads that were placed by that company, that firm, employment firm, 
for the particular occupation involved in the application on your behalf as the company or employer trying to do the international global recruiting. Again, remember the government, the Department of Labor is looking to make sure that this matches with how you would do it in the real world. They try to keep talking about real world ads, even though the whole process sometimes can really be so um, nitty gritty that people in the real world say, well, that's not, I, I wouldn't do some of these archaic methods of contacting people. Or, for example, employee referral programs with incentives, which can be documented by providing dated copies of the employer notices or memoranda advertising the program or your handbook, etc., and specifying what type of incentive you may offer from a few dollars to whatever you might have for your employees. Sure. And to kind of round out uh, the, the 10 additional forms of recruitment, you can use a campus placement office, which can be documented by providing a copy of, of your notice of the job opportunity provided to the campus placement office. Also, you could use a local or ethnic newspaper, which could be documented by providing a copy of the page in the newspaper or often known as a tear sheet, um, that contains your advertisement. Finally, if you use a radio or television ad, you can show a copy of the text that was aired and basically have an affidavit from the radio or television station. Okay. And so in terms of the employee qualifications, what are the criteria looked at by uh, this, Alyssa? Sure. So the in addition to all of this other documentation that we've been discussing, uh, the employer should also be documenting how that uh, employee or your candidate qualifies. And that's going to be items such as education documents, uh, perhaps a credentials evaluation, um, evidence of their experience, maybe prior employer letters, uh, as all, and also licensure. Okay. And so there's there are certain situations that we call special handling type of cases where extra separate documentation may be required. We're guessing that most of the people on this conference call may not have those kinds of arrangements which are required in compliance with 656.10 little c. For example, with like live-in households or domestic workers where you need the one-year prior experience and business necessity for why you need a live-in domestic worker at your place of ho at your home or your business, I guess mostly your place of home for most uh, perm cases with domestic workers. You also have special handling uh, rules and regulations that are completely different for college and university faculty members, professors, teachers, etc. Sheep herders, I know it's crazy, but there is a whole separate category for sheep herders. And professional team athletes, um, again, it's sort of less of the focus on the minimal requirements in some of these cases, but sometimes you could they, they might bend the rules, especially with faculty members, for example, or team athletes. What about for regular, regular cases? Because that's what our current people are concerned about, Jessica. Right. So going back to where Sheila was talking about resumes of, of how applicants are lawfully disqualified, let's say that you say that the person's lawfully disqualified because they don't possess the knowledge and ability to perform the job. Then you want to have documentation about how it's not possible for them to acquire those skills in a reasonable amount of time. So for example, if you had a certain technology the person had to have experience with, you know, it would take them a year of training to gain that, then that um, shows kind of your reasonableness of how you could not train the individual. Similarly, if you have an issue with business necessity, um, so if you're requiring a foreign language, if you have a combination of occupations, if your, um, if your requirements are high enough to say that they're not normal for the position, you may want to include a business necessity letter from yourself kind of indicating, for example, why a bachelor's degree and five years of experience is required uh, by the company due 
to its business requirements. You could also put resumes of other company employees basically show that it's consistent. Everybody in the software developer position has a bachelor's degree in five years of experience or even something with, with the industry norm. Um, this can be ads from other employers, you know, alternate wage surveys, things of that nature. Anything else, Alyssa? Sure. So in addition to these items, there, there's other uh, issues that the employer is going to want to have supporting evidence of. Um, for example, if you have a candidate using experience gained on the job, you're going to want to evidence that. Um, also some you know, standard evidence about the company itself, such as their tax identification number. Um, perhaps there's area or the company's industry has specific issues that they need to document. Um, and, you know, this is important, I think, especially right now, is this uh, issue of proof of layoffs. So if you had layoffs and the employer notified potentially qualified laid-off U.S. workers um, and considered any of these interested former employees, that has to be documented as well. Um, another item to consider is if your employee or foreign national candidate uh, is a owner or part owner, um, or if they have a familial relationship with an owner uh, of the sponsoring employer, you really need to document that they did not uh, control this process, that they didn't influence it. It is a company-driven uh, sponsorship. You know, yeah, go ahead. So I was, I was just going to mention that I know we're talking about a lot of documentation and we're just kind of skimming the surface, but I think it's a good idea for you to kind of understand, you know, what's required. Of course, you have the PERM FAQs. You can always, you know, reference, for example, for layoff if that's something that you hadn't thought of before. So just keep in mind that we're kind of giving um, breadth and not depth for this yeah. Well, as I was listening to all of us talk, I thought if I'm the employer listening in, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I have to run a business, find clients, um, you know, to make sure I still stay in business, comply with all other kinds of laws, employment laws and other federal laws and state laws and county laws. And now I have to pay taxes and deal with the stress and deal with a million other processes and problems as a business owner. And the 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 number the amount of uh, dotting the i's and crossing the t's and maintaining paperwork for an immigration can be so overwhelming and scary that it almost is tempting to just throw in the towel, especially where in this political climate you're getting more RFEs and more noise and more noirs and denials. It's like, where do we draw the line? When do we know, you know, should I just forget about this? Forget about all of this. I mean, I'm sure it's everybody on this call right now listening to me talking is saying, boy, you hit the nail on the head. This is so stressful. Why even bother? Should we change our business model? What should we do to stay in business so we can put food on the table and continue to stay in business? But I would just kind of echo what Alyssa talked about earlier is that by looking at everything now and not when the government asks for it can be so helpful in alleviating stress, kind of getting your ducks in a row, so to speak. So I do think it's important that if you have questions, you absolutely talk to an immigration attorney, you know, get things fixed as you're kind of housekeeping into the new year. As they say, prevention is always cheaper than cure. You know, a stitch in time saves nine. So let's focus on the positive. Let's try to make lemonade out of lemons here because the truth is we are in a different political environment. We're in a different uh, environment overall, but with the economy doing fairly well overall, chugging along with unemployment, one of its lowest rates, we would really hope that the government would sort of back off and let businesses and let the demand and supply and the economic factors work the way they have in the history of this country and 
But the reason that we focused on this topic today was really to sort of point out for you all as business owners, as HR folks, keep responsible for maintaining paperwork within your organizations, why it is so important to understand what is out there, what you can do, and how you can maintain your paperwork, whether it's your public access files, your LCAs, your PERM documentation. Of course, we at the Murthy Law Firm have a team for audit and compliance work. In fact, Alyssa Klein is the supervising attorney for that department and team at the firm, and they can look at your paperwork and give you feedback and say, okay, here's where you need to start focusing on, and here's where you can clean up your stuff, and you know what? As long as we do this before there's an investigation or knock on your door, it, as we talked about earlier, shows good faith and the desire to comply with laws, which will save you a lot more um, in terms of avoiding penalties, monetary fines, debarment, all of that stuff. Um, also, I know that we are at the end of the year, and next when we speak, which will be next month, which will be January, which is really bizarre because that means it's the new year, uh, we want to take this opportunity to wish each of you the very best wishes for the holiday season and the coming new year. On behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Alyssa Klein, Jessica Beaver, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us for today's teleconference, and we look forward to hearing from you about what other topics you'd like for us to discuss with you so that we can com continue to educate you and empower you as we deal with a challenging environment. Thank you and have a wonderful day. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.